Um, all right, if you have your Bibles, then please turn to Romans chapter 14 today as we keep going through the book of Romans. Uh, Romans 14 is where we've come to. Let's go ahead and read from verses uh, 1 through 6. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, then get one of the black Bibles on the end of the pew, and it should be on page 948 on to page 949 today. And you can keep that Bible for yourself if you don't have one. Here's what God's word says to us today. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. We're uh, going to a new section of the book of Romans today. Uh, as we start chapter 14, it's not a new section in terms of being an entirely new half of the book. That was when we got to chapter 12. Remember, all of chapters 1 through 11 was kind of geared toward the great doctrines of the Christian faith and making it very clear it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile or barbarian or whatever you want to call yourself. Everybody, regardless of your background or religious upbringing, everybody is a sinner before God who must be saved by God's grace alone, and that comes only through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this Christ has come and made propitiation for our sins and offers this grace freely, and that when we come into this grace, that we come in not just to a personal relationship with God, but we also come in to be part of the people of God. And that's what we got to at the, in Romans 11, that God takes people, whether they are Jew or Gentile, who come to faith in Christ and says, well, now you have been made part of the vine. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And so when we've come to faith in Jesus, we've been brought into the same vine, or as it says in Romans 11, the same olive tree. We've been made one people together. And then when you get to Romans 12, it starts shifting from these great doctrines of, of um, the gospel to, well, how do these things apply to our daily lives? Here's who you are in Christ in the first half of the book, and now here is how you live as someone who is in Christ in the remaining part of the book. And this is something that ought to tra transform everything about our lives as we present our bodies as a living sacrifice and are, are transformed by the renewing of our mind. And he talked about the love that we're to have together. He talked about relationships to outsiders and even those who would treat us as enemies and persecute us and, and relationship to authorities, all kinds of things and, and what it looks like to live out God's law of love in all of that. And today, as we get to chapter 14, beginning at verse 1 and continuing all the way through chapter 15, verse 7, 
he's going to start addressing, well, how does this work out within that church setting? Where, where, as I said earlier, Romans 11 taught that we've all been grafted into the same olive tree. He's put us all together. The intention of God was not for us to be put, uh, you, you know, brought to Christ and then to split up based on, well, let's have a, a, a Jewish church over here and let's have a Gentile church over here and let's have a, this church and that church. God's intention was for us to be one body together, not divided along those kinds of things. And so, well, how does that work out? This is part of what's being addressed here as we get to Romans 14, some of the practicalities of some of the issues that were involved in that is that there were Christians who sometimes based on their background, sometimes based on whether they were brought up in a Jewish setting and were accustomed to Jewish kinds of uh, observance of ceremonial laws, sometimes just other ways that, that people would want to honor Christ in ceremonial kinds of ways. There, it seems like that they may have even sent a question from Rome to Paul about, well, what do we do on this issue? And, and Paul seems to be addressing that here and saying, well, you know, in light of all the other chapters leading up to this, well, let's go on, let's go on now and let's, let's consider that thing that you brought up here. Father, we thank you for uh, keeping us safe. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of something like fire alarms. Uh, Lord, we thank you that this church has been preserved from uh, having its building burned down ever since 1858 when that last happened, and we pray that it would never happen again. Uh, but God, thank you for those, uh, those emergency workers, even as, as we lift them up in prayer from time to time. Um, Lord, they're, they're here to, to help us and make sure that we're all right. We pray that you'd bless them. Uh, Lord, help us to figure out what's going on with the building to, to prevent this from happening again. But God, I pray that you'd focus our hearts on you as we seek to continue to worship and submitting ourselves underneath your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Just to remind you, if you closed your Bible on the way out, Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 6 is where we are. And so this is a passage of scripture, as I said, that is designed Four churches, probably in response to a question that, that they had sent to Paul, and it's something to keep the church from dividing. Uh, to keep the church from dividing or to developing factions around issues that they ought not to divide and have factions around. Now, as we, we hear that, one of the sad realities that comes to mind for all of us is the fact that, yes, there are lots of different kinds of churches right now that um, can't get together. And that is a sad reality of the time that we have right now until Jesus comes back when there is still such a thing as sin. And that is the root problem, is sin. And when I say that, I, I don't necessarily mean that every church out there is seeking to be rebellious to God, but the fact that we have different understandings of the Scripture that prevent us from doing things like coming together with Presbyterians and, and mixing our church together. By the way, the reason you can't do that is because you can't have a church that both does baptize infants and doesn't baptize infants. You either do or you don't, right? But the reason ultimately why there's that difference is because there is such a thing as sin and that affects our minds. It's called the noetic effects of the fall. One or the other of us, or both of us, are misunderstanding the scriptures, but we will understand properly one day when Christ comes back. This passage, however, this is not about things like that. Oh, I should mention too, there are branches of Christianity that we absolutely ought never to have fellowship with because they're not true Christianity. If they have a different source of authority, such as the Pope and the councils of the Roman church, 
That is not fellowship that we ought to have. If they have a different source of authority, such as human reason or human experience, as you find in Protestant liberalism, we just can't come together and find common ground on that and say that we're in fellowship. But this is addressing issues where people have a true sense of the true gospel. There's nothing going on that would mean that they can't be in church together, and yet there's a temptation to say, oh, well, he has that opinion. He's part of that group. I have this opinion. We're part of this group. We ought not to come together except to debate. That's kind of the feeling, and it's saying, hey, let's go ahead and apply love to this situation. Let's, let's remind ourselves of what it said back in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, when he was talking to the church. He said, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. And he's applying that now to these kinds of situations that have to do with what we call the weak brother. And so let's just go on and, and look at that in verse 1 about welcoming the weak brother. He says, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. What does weak in the faith mean? Or weak in faith... Probably what it means here is not, hey, he doesn't actually understand the gospel. It's not that kind of weak in faith. He's in the faith. He already has faith in Jesus. His sins are forgiven. He is justified by the blood of Christ. He is a brother in Christ. He's not seeking to get his sins forgiven by abstaining from certain foods or by observing certain holidays or something like that. He is trusting in Christ alone. And yet, in some of his convictions, he's showing that he doesn't quite grasp what the Christian faith means yet. He hasn't put his whole mind around what it means to live out this freedom that we have in Christ and to serve a Christ who has set us free from things like food laws and, um, and Passover festivals and those sorts of things. And yet, they're in the faith. Weak in, weak in faith, welcoming the one who's weak in faith, it means... Hey, treat him as a brother in Christ. Don't say, hey, this, this thing where this person has a weird conviction, we're going to, uh, we're going to excommunicate him over that. We're, or we're not going to let somebody join the church who, who has that weakness in their understanding of how the Christian faith should be lived out and how they should honor God. And even not just as a whole church, but personally to say, hey, let's welcome one another together. Welcome him. Bring them in. Love one another. Get to know one another. Find out how you can serve one another. Occasionally, people come to a church, and sometimes this is the reason why church hoppers become church hoppers, is because they go from church to church looking for a church where everyone is spiritually mature in the church, where no one is weak in faith. And you find that there is no such a church, and if there was such a church, it would be a dying church. Because if everybody were spiritually mature, then that means that there's nobody who's being won to Christ and being discipled and raised up in that church. And so it's healthy for a church to have those who are spiritually mature, strong in faith, as well as those who are spiritually immature, weak in faith, who are together in fellowship together and growing in Christ. And well, what we have here, the kind of, of weakness that it's talking about, it's not the kind of weakness that would say, oh, well, I'm, this person is not strong in their faith yet, and so they are walking like the world and going after sexual immorality and, and carousing and all those kinds of things that it, it listed out in verse 13 that, that are deadly. No, it's not that kind of thing. That's, that's somebody not showing the fruit of being in Christ. The kind of weakness it's talking about is weakness that is seeking to honor the Lord in ways that God hasn't required. 
seeking to, to be a worshiper and a follower of Christ by following regulations that Christ has not asked them to follow. That's essentially what this is. If you've ever played sports, then you know that sometimes there will be somebody who comes around the sport who is brand new to it, who isn't very good, but in their head they're really into it, and, and you can almost always tell because their, their equipment is so shiny and new. I remember this, this happened when I, I was a, a playing tennis in middle school and high school. That uh, you, know, you, you had the, the, the great tennis players who, you know, every once in a while they get some new shoes, maybe get a new racket, something like that. But you see somebody walk up, their shoes are shiny, their clothes are brand new, the racket is like top of the line, latest model, no scratches. You're like, that guy's not any good. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, I am so into this, I am so all in that I am going to show in my devotion to tennis that I have these things. And sometimes that kind of a thing carries in with weakness in the faith where those who haven't actually figured out what it means to follow Christ and what it is that Christ does and does not require of us will come in and say, out of devotion to Christ, I will eat only vegetables, as the example is here in Scripture. Or out of devotion to Christ, I will observe Rosh Hashanah or something like that. That's kind of the the situation he's playing into here. But when he says welcome him, he says in verse 1, not in order to quarrel. He says not to quarrel over opinions. Or one way to think of it is you can't quarrel him into acting strong. You you could say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll bring him in so we can just set him straight. And well, I mean, yeah, we got to disciple people, right? But some are very, very eager to just say, hey, this is a great opportunity for a quarrel. And he says, don't do that. If you want somebody to go from being weak in the faith to being strong in the faith, if you want to see somebody the way that Christ actually has laid out for him to be followed, rather than all of these ways that are just kind of not required, it's not going to happen by, by just saying, hey, I'm going to shove you ahead in your faith. I'm going to just make you do this. I'm going to argue you into growing in Christ. Now, if you can think of a time in your Christian walk when you have been argued into growing in Christ, or quarreled, I might say, into growing in Christ, then you're in the minority. I'm not going to say it's impossible, but how does it usually happen that you grow in Christ? How does it usually happen that where your thinking was, was wrong about Christ and that that was affecting your living, that you ended up changing your mind and following Christ more faithfully? Well, how it happens is through what we call the ordinary means of grace, right? Where, where we're going to be in Scripture and we're going to be in prayer, we're going to be in loving fellowship with the church. And, and if it's going to happen with our loving fellowship with the church, it's, it's not usually going to be, hey, that guy from that group over there who thinks I'm a dunce came over and told me I'm wrong. That's not how it's going to happen. It's going to be, hey, this person who I can tell cares about me and likes me sat down with me and we opened our Bibles together and prayed and talked about what's going on in our lives and, and looked at this truth and the Holy Spirit brought that truth to light in my heart. That's usually how you grow in your faith, in connection with other people welcoming you and receiving you. It's not going to be by quarreling. So he gives the instruction here, receive him, but not to quarrel about opinions. But at the same time, verse 2, we can see that it's not to pretend the truth is relative. 
Why do I say that? He says, one person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. He could have said here, he could have said, one person believes he may eat anything, and another person will only eat vegetables. He could have presented it that way, like, well, it just doesn't matter which path you choose, or neither opinion is better than the other. He could have done that, but he doesn't say that. What the scripture says is the weak person eats only vegetables. Just keep in mind, those weak people who ate only vegetables would have had the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, read aloud to them too. They would have heard, as Paul is giving these instructions, that they are the weak brothers, that they're doing what is not required in following Christ. And so there was an actual, real truth here. Paul isn't saying, hey, just let it go and agree to disagree and, and pretend that, that none of these issues have a real answer. He said, there is a real answer, and still welcome the weak brother. We've we got to talk a little bit, though, about what exactly this issue is that he's, he's addressing here. And really, there's three issues in Romans 14 that he addresses. One has to do with abstaining from meats. One has to do with observing Jewish holidays. And then the third one, as he's going to get to later on in Romans, has to do with abstaining from alcohol, from wine, as he puts it here. We're just going to talk for a minute here about that meat one, because this, is, this can be confusing. Why would it be that people think that they can't eat any meat as an act of following Jesus? Well, partly it's because you had a lot of, of people who were coming to faith in Christ out of Judaism, and that's just kind of their background in their life is these foods are clean, these foods are unclean, and they're just, even though they may recognize, yeah, I, Jesus declared the foods clean now, and, and, and it's okay, they're just not comfortable with that. Or they feel like, well, okay, I guess it's not a sin to eat those non-kosher foods, but, but I really feel better about the way I'm walking with Jesus if I abstain from all of it anyway. That's kind of the feeling you had from the weak brothers. It's important to know that Jesus did declare all foods clean. It says this in Mark 7, 18 through 23. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. And it says right here, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, and foolishness. Now those are things that you don't say Okay, well, he's just a weak brother. I'll go ahead and let him live in sexual immorality. No, that's not the case. That's not what we're talking about here. Jesus said all of those things, they flow from the heart. You, you don't get defiled because you ate bacon for breakfast. You get defiled from the sin that flows out of hearts because we're sinners. He says all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Not only that, but Jesus gave Peter a vision in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, as Peter was trying to figure out, how do I go and, and obey the command that I received from God to go and, and bear witness to the gospel if I'm going to go to this Gentile's house whose name is Cornelius? Would have been, been strange to go into a Gentile's house where things were not kept kosher and, and figure out, well, how do, I, how do I handle that? Do I eat? What do I, what do I do? And Jesus gave him this vision 
This vision of something like a sheet coming down from heaven filled with all kinds of unclean animals. And Jesus said to Peter, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Peter said, I can't do that. I'm paraphrasing. He said, I can't do that. I've, I've kept kosher my whole life. And Jesus says, what God has called clean, let no man call unclean. So he declared that. Jesus declared it as part of his making sure that all of the people in Christ could have fellowship together. That there wouldn't have to be some sort of a split between Gentile churches and Jewish churches. That it would be clear, Jesus has expressly said, you can eat these things and you can be in the homes of Gentiles who do not keep kosher. You can come together in all of that. But it's not just about Jewish observance either, because you see here that it, it, it explicitly says one person may eat anything while well, a weak person eats only vegetables. See, this was beyond even what the law of Moses had required. The law of Moses didn't require eating only vegetables. But there were some who would say, well, in order to make sure that I never break the kosher laws, I'm going to stay away from meat altogether. But get this, it's not just a Jewish issue either. This would have been something that would have been a difficulty for Gentile Christians as well. Many Gentile Christians, I should say that. The reason I know that is because, the reason we know that is because in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 10, where he's primarily speaking to a Gentile Christian audience there in the book of 1 Corinthians, you have lots and lots of instructions about what to do with this issue of meat sacrificed to idols. Here's what we're talking about. They lived in a pagan culture. Now, you may say to yourself, well, we live in a pagan culture, and yeah, I mean, yeah. But when I say they lived in a pagan culture, I mean, it's like every time you went to grandma's house, she, she would be serving you a steak and saying, this steak has been blessed by this idol god over here. And so, therefore, let us partake. And, and, and so just so much of the eating, the meat preparation, was just completely in that culture mixed in to false worship of pagan gods. It's almost like every time they killed an animal, they, they had to say to themselves, well, maybe we should consider which god we're sacrificing this animal to and give a portion to that god so that this will be blessed toward us in these ways. And it was just so common that even Gentiles who came to faith in Christ were reluctant, oftentimes, to eat meat after that. Because their whole lives, what they had associated the eating of meat with was the worship of false gods, of paganism. And so, so this, this issue comes up. And let me just read you some of the things that the Bible says about it so that we can get a grasp a little bit of, of what it says. In Acts 15, it, 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 the, there's a letter that's sent from the apostles to the church in Antioch that says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Okay, so right there he says, abstain from meat if it's been sacrificed to idols. But then in 1 Corinthians 8, it says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? 
Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. That idea of not making your brother stumble is something we will get to more as we get toward the end of chapter 14 of Romans. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, a little bit more information about this. He says, what do I imply then? Do I imply that food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And then, later in the chapter, he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions of, on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. And I'll, I'll, I'll abbreviate a little bit and just go to the end of that and say, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether, I, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I read you all that because it's a weird issue that's really foreign to us. And yet, when we start to think about it, it applies in lots of ways that are still real issues and live issues today. The issue here is that they did not want to be partakers in pagan worship. And you know what? Do not be partakers in pagan worship. And you put it all together, and kind of the biblical teaching of this is, if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, let's eat meat offered to an idol together, you say, no thank you. I don't worship idols. But if you're going through the market and you see something hanging up that looks tasty and you want to buy it and eat it, there is no requirement that's placed on Christians that you have to certify that it was never involved in a pagan sacrifice before it came into your hands. It's just meat. And so there's freedom to eat whatever is in the meat market without asking questions, but at the same time, there is not freedom to be partakers of the table of demons. So you can eat whatever you want to, but don't go to grandma's house if grandma says, come and let's have an idol worship meal together. That's the idea here. But as this happens, as this comes to this context that these people are in, what they're saying is, well, if I want to make sure that I'm really serving Christ, then I'm only going to eat vegetables so that I don't go anywhere near that meat sacrifice to idols. I won't ever have to think about it. I can be completely dedicated to Christ by being vegetarian. Paul says that is the weak position. It sounds like a strong position. It looks like shiny brand new sports equipment for the Christian. But he says this is the weak position. And those who grow in the faith, who become strong in the Lord and in spiritual maturity, understand that even though that looks like a certain kind of zeal, it's a misunderstanding of what's required in Christ. So with all of this, we, we, we can say, well, there are still things that apply to us and as Christians living in New Jersey in 2023. And as I've, I've thought about this, I have to I admit to you, I've had stuff about this on my mind for months leading up to this, because even mentioning, hey, this issue might be something that the weak brother engages in, it's a little, little interesting to say, isn't it, from the pulpit? And, and I don't mean that by every issue, because some of these issues, there, there are legitimate arguments between Christian. Which side of this issue is the weak and which side is the strong? Sometimes we don't even really exactly know, right? But, but a few things that we could, we could look at and we could say 
One of those is something like alcohol, and that's going to come up later in the chapter. You know, I grew up in a context where if somebody was said to drink alcohol and to be a Christian at the same time, then you would just say, must not be true. If they had a glass of wine with dinner, then they must not actually know Jesus, and we got to evangelize them. That's kind of the context I grew up in. In that kind of context, Jesus would not be allowed to be the pastor of the church because he turned water into wine. But at the same time, we kind of understand why it is that so many people coming out of their life apart from Christ immediately leave alcohol behind altogether. And sometimes that's exactly what you need to do, right? Sometimes it's exactly what you need to do, but sometimes there are those who would say, well, that's what you must do, and that's not what the Bible says. Rock and roll, another example, right? There are those who, in their old life in Christ, or before Christ, every time they heard a distorted guitar, it was because they were into something they shouldn't be into. And their heart was going places their heart shouldn't go. And, and once they come to Christ, it, it's almost like, well, if I'm going to be devoted to Christ, I can never listen to distorted guitars again. And, and I remember in the youth group growing up that there would, we would sometimes uh, go to these conferences where somebody would, would stand up and give a testimony about how when they became a Christian, they burned all of their secular CDs. We used CDs back then. And, and I just kind of thought, I don't think I have to burn all my secular CDs. Does that make me a bad Christian? Some of them you should burn. <laughs> you know, dancing. There are some places still today where they think, oh, Baptists, they're the ones who don't allow you to dance. Well, if you grew up in a pagan system and doing the things that the world does, it's pretty likely that you never knew such a thing as going out and dancing apart from going out for the purposes of immorality. So it's understandable why we'd say, we got to leave that behind altogether. And then, at the same time, they may come into worship and start going like this. And, I don't know. That's all right. It's good. Okay? But here's, here's the thing. There, there are some Christians who get really nervous about accidentally participating in something pagan because they've, they've learned that some kind of common um, custom has historical connections to pagan religion. This is just another thing, you know, you, you, maybe somebody finally sent you that article that you never got sent before this, even though it's been around for years and years, uh, uh, saying here is why Christians shouldn't celebrate Christmas, because Christmas has all of these pagan connections back in history. Well, for one thing, all of those pagan connections in history to Christmas are pretty questionable historically. You can't really make those connections if you're being a faithful historian. But at the same time, did you know that pretty much everything in human society has been connected to paganism at one point or another? You know why that is? It's because humans are naturally pagan in our sin. The second half of Romans 1 was all about that. And and if you're going to say, I will never as a Christian have any connection in my life to anything that has ever had historical pagan connotations, you're not going to be able to go on living because you're you're going to need to spend that dollar bill sometime that has that weird picture on the back. And, And you're going to say to somebody, we are going to have a meeting on Monday. And not, not even thinking, hey, where did we get the names of the days of our week? They're all named after pagan gods. 
But none of us means when we say we're going to have a meeting on Monday, we don't mean we will celebrate the moon god tomorrow at 4 p.m. That's not what we're talking about. Sometimes this comes up in something like Halloween. Now, we absolutely ought not to celebrate Halloween in the way that the pagan culture does. We ought not to go around and celebrate ghosts and goblins and witches and the occult. But there are some Christians who, because of those connotations, say, I absolutely cannot let my child wear a costume on October 31st or eat candy, because those are pagan things. And that's one of those things where we can receive each other. Yoga is an interesting issue. Now, if, if you're going to define yoga like the Hindus do, they would not say that anything is yoga unless it involves pagan worship. They, they would say, okay, well, if you're just doing athletic poses without emptying your mind in these meditations and honoring these, these pagan gods, then that's not yoga at all. That's, that's what they would say. But I, when, when a Christian woman, a faithful Christian woman says, you know, this morning I ran two miles and then I did some yoga, I do not understand her to be saying, I emptied my mind and honored the pagan Hindu gods. I take her to be saying, I did some athletic poses this morning that helped me stretch and strengthen some muscles. You see what's going on there? But there are some Christians who would say we absolutely cannot do those athletic poses because of the connotations that they have had. You can come to other things as well, and I'll try to stop listing them because even listing them makes me think, boy, we're going to have all kinds of risks of divisions over all of these things. Dare I say it? You are not required by Christ to homeschool your children. If you choose to homeschool your children, praise God. You absolutely may do that. But there are some who would say, if you follow Christ, that is the only option, and that's simply not in the Scriptures. So we could go on and on and on with issues like this, but i got to stop. Because what we want to do here is not to to stir up quarrels, not to stir up all kinds of ways that we could have factions and divisions. What we want to do is we want to receive one another, receive each other as brothers, and not to quarrel over opinions. He gives us this instruction in verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. We are not to despise one another. We're not to pass judgment on one another. Now, every time the Bible says not to judge, there are many people who will jump on that and say, that means that the immorality that I engaged in is not something that any Christian ever should have spoken against. That's not the case. (laughs) In fact, Jesus lays out in Matthew chapter 18, he lays out instructions for how the church is to go through a very careful process of judging. Judging according to right judgment actually examining the fruits of someone's heart, and if there is not repentance of real sin that can be recognized by the church as real sin, then if it comes to the point where somebody will not repent, then they're even said to be counted not as Christians anymore, to be counted as Gentiles and tax collectors, to be outside of the church. Something like that is frightening, and that's why that chapter says in that context, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. He's saying you can have confidence to judge according to right judgment as a church. 
But where we ought not to bring that in is these issues that are issues of indifference. Issues where somebody is seeking to honor Christ in a way where we were convinced you don't have to do that to honor Christ. In those situations, what do we do? We say, praise God that my brother is seeking to honor Christ. Let's not bring judgment for the ways that we would honor Christ. Let's love one another for the ways that we would honor Christ, even if some of those ways may demonstrate a weakness of faith. He says, who are you to pass judgment, verse 4, on the servant of another? I am trying to hurry because I know we had that alarm. He says, he says there, who are you to pass judgment? What we're to do here, according to verse 4, is leave it up to Christ to be Lord. Leave it up to Jesus to be the Lord of the conscience. When he says, who are you to pass judgment? He, what he doesn't mean is, who is the church? He means, who are you individual Christian? And when he says pass judgment, he doesn't mean, who are you to hold up what is clearly taught in the Bible and to clearly apply that to situations? I mean, that's something that we do need to do. But what he's saying here is, hey, you've got a brother who says, this is how I'm going to honor Christ. Well, who are you to jump in between him and Christ and say, stop it now? Who are you to do that? That's the idea here. Christianity... On the one hand, it, it's not a Lone Ranger religion. It, it's something that God wants us not to just be his children, but also to be brothers and sisters in Christ together. And so we, we have to keep that in mind, that we, we need to be a church together. There's a, an elderly gentleman at the church that, that uh, we were at in Kentucky for several years who, who used to always tell people, if, if he met somebody who said they're a Christian, but that they don't go to church anywhere, he'd, he'd always say, well... If your religion won't get you to church, I'd be worried it won't get you to heaven. And that's exactly right, based on 1 John, many other scriptures. If your religion won't get you to church, if you just think, I can be a lone ranger, just me and God, that's not what Christianity looks like. But get this, guys. At the same time, it is also an individual religion. It is also an individual relationship that each one of us has with Christ. And at the end of the day, we're not here to try to impress each other or try to prove that we have the shiniest equipment or try to prove to each other anything. At the end of the day, we're going to stand before our judge, Jesus. And our, our efforts in our own personal life ought to be to honor Christ. And when we see our brother or sister seeking to honor Christ in ways that we disagree with, we ought to say, Jesus is Lord. I am not Lord, and praise God that my brother wants to honor the Lord. He says here, he will be upheld, in verse 4, he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. What if somebody's trying to honor Christ in a way that gives away that they're weak in the faith? Does that mean that they're going to fall away? Does that mean they're going to be lost? Does that mean that they're not really Christians? No, he says the Lord is able to make him stand. This is just what it says in, in Jude verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He is able to keep you from stumbling. He is the one who can preserve us and make us stand. In verses 5 and 6, 
partaking or abstaining, that we're to honor the Lord. You know what I'm going to do because of the sake of time and because of the issue of the days and of the Sabbath and of the Lord's day that are presented in verses 5 and 6? I'm going to kind of save those until next time. But I do, I do want to just get at the other issues that are in verse 5 and 6, where he says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. But here, here's the thing. Each one should be convinced fully in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. I'll just give you a preview right there, and I'll tell you really quickly that that's not talking about whether or not you should honor the Lord on the Lord's day. This is, has to do with the, uh, the Jewish ceremonial observance of certain days. But I'll save that discussion for next time, like I said. The issue that I want to bring out for now is just this, that what we're to do as Christians in our personal lives, in our personal following after the Lord Jesus is to honor the Lord, to honor the Lord. And to, when, when we look and we see others who are honoring the Lord in ways that we have not chosen to do, even in ways where they are wrong in their convictions that they must honor the Lord in that way, even where they are the weak brother, what we're to do is we're to say, praise the Lord that he is honored. I do want to mention those who would say, well, I am honoring the Lord because you must abstain from meats in order to be a Christian. That is not honoring the Lord. We have to make this distinction here, all right? Because the, the Bible brings this out so clearly. You look at something like the book of Galatians. As opposed to Romans here, where we have a lot of charity toward those with different opinions, how does the book of Galatians start out toward those who have a different way of going about the Christian religion? It starts out by saying, you have gone after a different gospel. And if anyone comes and preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one I preached, let him be accursed. What's he saying? He's saying, there are those who say that in some things, it's not just a matter of you can do this to honor the Lord or you can hold back from this in honoring the Lord. There are those who would come and say, you must receive circumcision or you are outside of the covenant people of God. He says, that is a different gospel. There are those who would come and say, you must keep kosher. You must observe the Jewish holidays. You must keep these ceremonial laws or else the grace of Jesus will not come to you. He says that is heresy and to be accursed. And so when we talk about these things, we're, we're not saying, okay, well, it's, it's just a, a matter of a difference of opinion about how you get your sins forgiven. Absolutely not. There is one and only one way to get your sins forgiven. There's only one way to be right with God, and that is by faith alone in Christ alone. And I will say, if you have come to church today because you think that by the act of coming to church that you're going to get some sins knocked off of your heart, you need to look to Jesus. You need to look to the cross of Christ where he paid it all. You need to come to embrace this Lord and Savior 
so that you can be in Christ and you can shout for joy when you hear Romans 8.1 that for us who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. It's no more. It's gone. It's paid in full. So if you think to yourself, well, okay, I am going to become right with God by abstaining from pagan practices or things that I think are connected with worldly things, you're embracing a different gospel. But at the same time, if we come together in the true gospel of Jesus Christ, and we know together that Jesus has paid it all, and we're seeking together to honor the Lord in what we're doing, even with some differences of opinion, the instruction of the Bible is receive one another, welcome one another, love one another, serve one another, and walk together as we grow together in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you that uh, you have, have given us your instructions on things like this. God, we, we don't have a personal familiarity. I don't believe any of us do. Maybe some who, who grew up in different contexts in different countries have, have seen things like meat sacrificed to idols in a literal sense. But it's something that is, takes some steps up the ladder for us to, to apply to our hearts and lives today. And so I pray that you would help us to understand the scripture rightly and to apply it rightly. God, we, we just thank you for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, all who are seeking to honor Jesus in the way that they would conduct their lives and walk after him. Father, some keep regulations that are not required, and they do it out of conscience and out of honor to you, and we thank you for their love for Jesus. God, we, we don't always even know for sure what is the position that is weak or strong but God, I pray that where we don't know those things, that you'd give us a charity and a love and a willingness to open our Bibles together and to grow by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray for those who today are lost in their sins, and maybe they're pretending that they're not lost in their sins by, by doing acts of devotion as though those could get their sins forgiven. I pray that you would forgive them of that false gospel. I pray that you'd grant them a true repentance to turn and to see that they're wrong and to embrace Jesus in faith as Savior. And God, I pray for those who are so far from that. God, some of our own loved ones are not trying to pretend to be righteous. They're just embracing unrighteousness and embracing the things of the pagan world. And Lord, we certainly don't want to do that. And we want to see them saved out of those things. And so, God, we do pray that you would help us to abstain from the worship of idols. Help us to abstain from the things that the world promotes as good that are evil. The Lord, help us to honor Christ as Lord in the freedom that he's given us in all things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.